Welcome to the Dublin Bible Talks, midweek Bible Talks for workers in Dublin. I'm Cameron Jones. Grace is a key word for understanding Christian faith, but it's often misunderstood. Today we look at what the Bible teaches about God's grace in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Well friends, let me start by teaching you an Australian word. The word is wowzer. Uh, it's an Australian word that means, and this is a definition that an Australian poet gave, an ineffably pious person who mistakes this world for a penitentiary and himself as the warder. It's often used negatively, someone who's over-moral. I think it came out of the temperance movement. I remember in Northern Ireland, uh, there was a phrase that I discovered when I was living there, good living. I wonder what it is here in the Republic, here in Dublin. Those terms, interestingly, seem to refer to things that people don't do, and what people other and that what those people don't want other people to do either, especially regarding alcohol or sex outside of marriage and those kinds of things. Increasingly, it's used in a derogatory, maybe even pitying way. Good living, wowserism. It's a person who's missing out on life, according to the way the rest of the world thinks. Though there was a time when it was used with a level of respect, a person with commendable self-control and restraint. But what seems common is the impression that this is what makes a person a Christian. Someone who, something that someone needs to do, or something that someone should not do in order to become acceptable to God. But here in this passage, we have a very different definition of what a Christian is. And if we're going to understand what a Christian is, the best place to go is to the Bible. It's remarkable, this passage, for its focus. If you look at the verses there, verses 8 and 9 are all about why our works don't matter. And it talks about it in terms of this word grace. It talks about the result of grace, the response to grace, and a definition of grace. And then verse 10, it talks about why good works do matter as the purpose of grace. So first of all, let's have a look at why works don't matter. Verse 8, what is the result of this thing called grace? Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved. If I was to ask you to spot the one word in that sentence that Paul would say described the authentic Christian message, I wonder if you'd choose the same word as I have. <laughs> I don't think it's the word saved. That word describes our experience of being Christians. And I don't think it's the word faith although that does describe our reaction to God's work in Jesus. It's the third word that I'm guessing many of you actually got. It's the word grace. But we need to wait a little bit before, before we get to Paul's definition of that word. But its meaning we can begin to understand by looking at those other words, saved and faith. So first, the word save. Let's notice three things about it. The meaning of the word saved. It's not a special religious word, the way that Paul was using it when he first wrote. It was a word that meant 
health and well-being. You know, when someone meets you and they say, how are you? Or how about you? <laughs> if, you were in, if you were a Greek living in the first century, you would respond by saying this word. You'd say, I'm fully saved. I'm full of well-being, using the word that Paul uses here. But the writers of the New Testament use it with a more specific meaning. Not that I'm physically well or mentally well, but that I'm spiritually whole. I've been made right with God, and therefore at the very heart of my experience there is well-being. They mean that they have been freed from the punishment that they deserve in their rebellion, and they have been brought into eternal life here and now. Uh, Alex and I have been enjoying over a number of uh, months watching videos of an art restorer, and sometimes a piece comes in and it is in really bad shape. You can see what it was meant to be, and it was meant to be magnificent, but it has tears and stained varnish, and other people have tried to make repairs, but they've botched the job using the wrong tools and the wrong materials. To say that this guy restores the painting is to understate the transformation. Even paintings that looked good when they came into him, cleaning off the old varnish, itself, itself stained with smoke and time, ends up revealing colours and vibrancy that generations of people had never seen, seeing it the way the artist meant it to be. The work is made whole again. It has been saved. And Paul of the New Testament writers say, by grace you have been saved, you have been made whole, you have been restored. What about the timing of being saved? Did you notice the tense of the phrase? When is it that this salvation is cast? You have been saved. Speaking to people who are Christians, their restoration to life, to full spiritual well-being, is established in the past. This spiritual being with God is the most important restoration that anyone could ever receive, and it's something that has happened to these people in Ephesus, to whom Paul is writing. Look at it again. You have been saved. When the famous evangelist named Billy Graham came to Australia in 1979, he was interviewed on one of the television channels. The interviewer picked up on Billy Graham's certainty about his salvation, and he challenged him. And Billy gently but firmly insisted that he really was confident about his eternal future. And the interviewer got really angry. He accused Billy Graham of the most incredible arrogance to claim a certainty of being right with God. But Billy was only doing what any Christian can do be absolutely confident of being saved, of being right with God, of being made whole because of something that has happened. For us in Ireland, it's important to note that the, that the interviewer who was doing the interview was a devout Roman Catholic for whom the word grace has a very different meaning to what Billy understood. In Roman Catholic doctrine, there can be no certainty of immediate entrance to heaven. There is the uncertainty of hell, but still the prospect, even if hell is avoided, of a millennia in purgatory to purge yourself of your sins and make yourself ready for heaven. 
How does that fit with what God says in his word about salvation? It seems that Paul thinks differently, doesn't it? No, your wholeness is already a reality, he says to these Christians. It's something that has happened to you if you are a Christian person. So not just fully whole, not just in the past tense, but it's also what they call a passive tense. You have been saved. Notice it's, it's something not that we have done, but something that has happened to us. You have been. If you have been dressed, it tells me that you didn't dress yourself. It implies that you were unable to dress yourself. It's what uh, Daphne has to do for Siobhan. Siobhan, if she is dressed, she has been dressed because someone else has done it for her. Um, if, if, if you've been fed, it, it tells me that you did not feed yourself. It implies you were not able to feed yourself and it tells me that someone else did it for you. It has happened and someone else did it. And that, friends, also help us to understand what biblical Christianity means by grace. It is something that we did not do. It is something that we could not do. Something that someone else has done for us. So how Paul talks about Christians having been saved teaches us a little bit about what Paul means, what Christians mean by the idea of grace. Made whole in the past and it was done for us. But before we go into the definition of grace in any more detail, let's look at this other word, faith. The word faith is another one of those religious words, isn't it? I have met many people who once they hear I work for a church or for a mission organisation, they think say something like, oh, I wish I had your faith. As if faith was a special something that people are born with and other people are not born with. As if it mattered whether you had a lot of it or a little of it. As if faith itself was a positive quality all on its own. A little bit like the word sincere. But isn't it true that someone can be very sincere but entirely wrong? If I go to the extreme, I'm sure that people like Hitler and Stalin and Mao and Pol Pot were very sincere. The point is that sincerity is only valuable if what the person is sincere about is valuable. And faith is exactly the same. Even if faith has become a religious word, what Paul means by it is very simple and very everyday. The simple everyday word we use for uh, the simple and everyday w words we use for this biblical concept are words like trust or depend or rely. These words have no meaning or value by themselves, do they? They all imply an object that gives those qualities value. I mean, trust is only of any value. Uh, trust is only of any valuable. Sorry, trust is only of any value if what you are trusting is trustworthy. And when you depend on something or someone, it is only any use depending on them if they are dependable. And when you rely on something or someone, it is only any use relying on them if they are reliable. And when you are having faith, it's only of any value 
if the thing that you're trusting in, the thing that you're putting your faith in, is faithful. It's the object of the trust. It is the object of the dependence. It is the object of the relying that makes the decision to trust, the decision to depend, the decision to rely valid. I mean, you're all expressing faith right now. Um, uh, uh, from what I can see, yeah, Daphne's a little bit of a situation, but uh, different that's to us. But we're all trust. We're all sitting in chairs or lying on a bed or something like that. We're all putting faith in the chairs or in the bed to stop us from falling to the floor. Now, if you found a chair that was broken. And with all the confidence in the world, you sat with your full faith on that chair, saying, my faith will keep me up. You're still going to fall to the ground because it is not your faith keeping you up. It is the chair. And if the chair is faulty, your faith is futile. And conversely, if the seat is good, it doesn't matter how little faith you have in the seat in which you are sitting, you could have sat down as lightly as you want, as cautiously as you would like. But if the chair is good, if the chair is dependable, if the chair is reliable, if the chair is trustworthy, then it will bear your weight no matter how little you trust, depend or rely on it. Friends, faith is not an item of value by itself. It is not something that we bring to God and say, right, I've got my faith and I reckon I've got enough faith to buy my salvation from you. God, how about you now give me what I'm due? No, faith is simply complete and utter dependence. Like the dependence that you expressed when you sat down on the chair. When you ceased to depend on your own legs from keeping you from falling, and expressed your dependent on the chair by sitting on it. As long as you were holding yourself up by your legs, you were not sitting but standing. It was when you ceased depending on your legs that you sat and you expressed your faith in the chair. And friends, it is when we cease relying on ourselves that we express our dependence, our reliance, our faith in what God has done for us in Jesus, his death and his resurrection. And so understanding faith as dependence also helps us toward a definition of grace. Just as saving isn't something we are capable of, it's something done for us, so faith is also passive. It's not something we contribute. It is simply the ceasing of self-independence and beginning God-dependence. Now, in the next phrase, we get to the definition of grace. Do you see it there? And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Now here, friends, is the definition of grace. A gift of God, the gift of God. That is grace. Grace is a gift. It is not earned. It is not deserved. It is not from ourselves. It is given. And that is what God does for us in Jesus. He gave us new life. He saved us from what we deserve because of our rebellion. Why did you do it? Because of his love. And just to make sure that um, 
we don't get confused and start to thinking it's got something to do with us, have a look at what he says in verse 9. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Friends, not one person who has been made alive in Christ, who shares in his resurrection and is seated with him in the heavenly realms, can say that they have contributed anything at all to being saved. It is by grace. It is by the free gift alone. Not from ourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. No one can take credit for it. All of the work, and therefore all of the credit, goes to God and to his King, the Lord Jesus. There's a real balance to strike, friends, between confidence in what God has done and humility because it is God who has done it. And it is all done by Christ who died in our place. So no credit comes to me. None of the glory can be taken by us. It is all about Jesus. Let's just apply that to two situations that I've found often come up with Christian people. One is a group of people to hear a word of encouragement and another is a word where people need to get a bit of a rebuke. (laughs) First, there are some people, Christian people, who have a really hard time, they have a real struggle with a particular behaviour that they know is not honouring to God. They're really struggling with a particular sinful behaviour or pattern of thinking. And sometimes they find it very tempting to think that because they are struggling with it, because of their constant failure with it, that they may not be saved. And they get worried about it. Now, if you are a person like this, and I'm a person like that sometimes, we need to hear this. You've begun to believe, if you're thinking that, you've begun to believe that you are saved by your works and not by grace. You've started to think there is something that you could contribute or take away from the gift that God gives you. So hear this, friend. I need to hear it as much myself as I struggle with my own sin. Listen to this. It is by God's grace you are saved. But second, a word to a person who is devoted to living a good life. Now, obedience to God is good. It's important. It's, it's an expression of love and dependence, depending on how uh, or knowing that God, what God says about living is more, dependent, more dependable than our own thoughts about what living should be like. But it is possible that a person can be so devoted to obedience, they begin to add it on to grace. And that even while insisting by our words that we're depending on God for his grace, we begin to act as if our works, what we can do, might just get us a little bit more certain. That our works might just get us a little bit more into the kingdom of God than we were. And that, friends, is again to misunderstand grace and works. Read the passage again. Look at it with me. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, but the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And friends, boasting is so easy to fall into, but boasting is the road to hypocrisy, for we continue to fail. 
and more significantly, boasting in our salvation, denies that we are utterly dependent on God and instead begin to take credit for it ourselves. And that is awful. Now having said that, we now move on to what is the place of good works. Because good works do matter in the Christian life. Not to make us saved, not to make us more saved, not to give us more security, but why? Why do good works matter for the Christian? You find yourself asking the question, if I am reconciled to God completely by his gift of life in Jesus, what, what's, the good of, what, what's the use of good works? If that's the question that you start to ask, then let me tell you something. You really have not understood the purpose of God in all of history that Paul's been talking about in Ephesians. That's why he started speaking with that huge, big first sentence that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. He started like that because people then uh, were getting confused. And we find out that people in Rome were getting confused about that because in the letter to the Romans, he deals with that there again. And it will not be surprising if we get confused as well. So we need constant reminding of God's purpose in all of history. God's purpose in all of history is all about Jesus. And in the same way as we've discovered that God's purpose in all of history is not only the cross, but also the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to glory, so too our being saved is not an end in itself. God's purposes from before the beginning of the world does involve your being saved. But God's big purpose to bring is actually to bring his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, glory. And if you don't get that, then you won't get the purpose of God's grace toward us. Look at the first two phrases that we have in verse 10. For we are God's workmanship. That means there is something communicated of ownership and purpose here. A person who has made something owns the thing that they have made. It is for that, purpose, that person's purposes not anyone else's. A potter has the right to do whatever they want to with the clay. Here we are told that we are God's workmanship. Look at the second phrase. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. How are we made as Christians? How are we worked? Well, true human existence is found only in what Jesus has done. Anything apart from him <laughs> is people being dead but walking. We're all dead, it's just that some people don't know it yet. Walking along the path of rebellion, transgression, sin and death, that's what we were. But a Christian walks another path. Because we are created, we are God's workmanship in Christ Jesus with a purpose. Look at it in the text there. What is the purpose? Going back to the question I posed before. If I'm saved and Jesus died for me and he's paid for all my sins, past, present and future, then surely I'm able to do whatever I want and I'm assured of forgiveness. Now the person who presents that point of view has maybe understood what God's grace is, but they haven't they haven't understood the purpose of God's grace. 
God's grace is not given to us for our own benefit, as if we were the centre of the universe, as if we were the centre of God's plan throughout all of time. No, God's grace expressed to us in Christ Jesus. It's got Jesus Christ at the centre. God's plan is not anthropocentric, not human-centred. God's plan is Christ-centred, centred on Christ. And if we start to act as if the gospel of Jesus Christ was all about allowing us to do whatever we want, what we're doing then is we're making ourselves the centre of the universe. We are, in fact, saying that we've been saved so that we can sin. As I said the other way, the other week, and I keep on saying, the definition of sin is saying, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rules. And Christian friends, that is the walk of death. Paul describes that walk of death in verses 1 to 3. It's the, it's, the li- it's the way of living, it's the walk from which we've been rescued. We've been rescued from that sinful walk to being under Jesus' lordship, to obedience to Jesus, to loving service of him, to passionate devotion to him. And that is not what is being expressed by someone saying, right, I've got my ticket to heaven, I can do what I want. No, that would be a very serious perversion of God's gift of grace, wouldn't it? Because God's purpose in grace is that we might live again under Jesus' lordship. Look back up to verse 22 in chapter 1 with me. Chapter 1, verse 22, where it says, And God placed all things under his, Jesus' feet, and appointed Jesus to be the head over everything. See, friends, God's plan is that Jesus is over everything. And so do you see how nonsensical it is to suggest that if God's plan is that Jesus is over everything, that we can be saved and then act as if he was not the king over everything? No, God's gift to us in Jesus is free, completely free. We contribute nothing to it. But the purpose, the purpose is to have us commit to whatever the Father is committed to in all of history. What is the Father committed to in all of history? Bringing glory to his Son through good works that we're only able to do once we're rescued from our rebellion. So the question then becomes, well, what, what are the works that God has prepared in advance for us to do? Well, I think there's a pattern in Ephesians that help us to understand it. It's a pattern that's influenced my language, actually, in the last section I was speaking, the words I was using there. Because if we look back to chapter 2, verse 1, look at what he says there. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. The phrase translated there in which you used to live is well translated. It gets the idea across. But the way Paul wrote it literally says, in which you formerly walked. You used to walk that way. And when we get to chapter 2, verse 10, have a look there. It says, to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. The phrase to do in that verse, in verse 10, is exactly the same word. So good acts, which he has made ready beforehand, that we should walk in them. So when we have a 
we, we have continuity of this metaphor of a life lived in terms of which path we're walk, walking on. And we Christian people who together once walked a path of transgression, we used to live a pattern of sin, uh, a walking a life that was characterized by opposing the will of God, walking a, a, a way of disobedience. But now, by God's grace, we've been taken from that path and set onto a new one. And this new path we walk is a very different path. It is the path of good works in Christ that God has prepared for us to walk in. What makes works good works? What makes anything that we might do good? Do you see, it's not the effort we put into them. It's not even about how many people they help. It's not how much of the planet it rescues. <laughs> it's not about how nice a person is or the beauty that they create. What makes works good is the path you are walking while you do them. A path that is all about rebellion and sin and transgression and ignoring God bears no work that is good in God's eye. The good work is the work that is done to bring glory to Jesus, the Son. And so what is the point of good works? Can we see how the attitude of why good do good works, if I'm already saved, misses the point of all of history? God made us to walk in a different way, to live in a way that is always, in everything we do, bringing glory to Jesus. Now, friends, my head's almost bursting with trying to contain all of these thoughts, and, and I don't want to try and fit too much in. But, but we can't ignore what Paul's already written. Look back again at verse 22 of chapter 1, where it says, And God placed all things under his feet, and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The amazing thing about the glory of Christ being God's focus is that he's the head and we who are the church, we who are Christian people, we are, who he's, we are Jesus' body. The church in the New Testament, friends, never means a building. It always means a group of people. <laughs> Once or twice it means a mob, but it never means a building. When Paul uses it here, he's talking about the group of people throughout the world and throughout all of history who honour Jesus as the great king. That is his church. And the good works, according to the pattern of Ephesians, is not, is, is not what we no longer do. It's not defined by what we abstain from. It's primarily what we do to build up the body of Christ. It's what we do to serve other Christians and make them stronger in their faith. It comes out in more detail in Ephesians, but for a sneak, pre sneak peek of what we're uh, going to do in a, I don't know how long time, uh, turn forward to chapter 4, verse 11. Have a look at that there. It says that it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the full measure of the wholeness of Christ. 
Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Friends, do you see what it is to be a devoted recipient of God's grace toward us? What it means is for us to get with God's program, to start walking the path he's put us on, the one that gives glory to Jesus that he's been that he's had in mind since before the beginning of the world to glorify through his to glorify his son through his sacrifice his service of sinful people by glorifying him by his service of dying for us by glorifying him by Jesus resurrection from the dead by glorifying him by his including the church those who respond by faith to God's grace in that glory and we who are Christian people who are made one with each other and with Christ we are brought into this activity that God planned before the creation of the universe not just to be beneficiaries of his work but to be included in the work of building each other up in our knowledge and our love of the Lord Jesus and that friends is what we do when we gather together here on a Wednesday. It's what Christians do week in and week out every time they go to church on a Sunday or wherever it happens to be or whenever it happens to be. And if that's not why you went to church, then now you know why you should have been going to church and what you should have been doing as you've been doing as you've been going. And even why you've been coming here. It's to not just learn yourself, it's to encourage the others who are coming along to grow in their Christian lives. Bear in mind that the work that you, if you're a follower of Jesus, the work that you now do, you've been created for that. You are designed to be a participant in the great work that God has planned, the work of glorifying Jesus by building up his church his people you see how being a christian can't be individual it's something that you're called into as a community of believers and we express that in various ways together our whole experience of christian as christian people is to devote ourselves to the same purpose as god the father to do good works that are good because they are going along the path he's made us to walk on that gives glory only to Jesus. By the way, that means that uh, the person over here who's doing something that's maybe good for the environment, it's not a good work like we're talking about here. Why is it not a good work? Because it is done for a reason other than giving glory to Jesus. But it also means that the very trivial sounding, small little things of your life that you do, whether it's going to work, whether it's doing the washing up, whether it's hanging clothes on the line, whether it's talking to a neighbor, whatever you do in life, suddenly takes on an eternal glory and purpose. 
Because every little thing that you do as you walk that path as a Christian can be done in a way that brings glory to Jesus. And therefore, that little thing that you're doing is actually an enormous thing aligning with God's purpose for all creation. The way that you conduct yourself in that business meeting. Giving glory to Jesus and therefore takes on eternal value. The way that you speak to your colleague suddenly has eternal value because you can do it in a way that brings glory to Jesus, which is God's program that he's planned before the beginning of the world. It's, a, it's it, the program that he's now placed you on by your faith in Jesus Christ, which is only something that you have by his gift to you. Every second of your life is now devoted to giving the Lord Jesus Christ glory. The email that you were thinking of sending to your boss or to that employee the conversation that you need to have with your husband or your wife or your child, the way you do your vacuuming, <laughs> the way you cook the roast, the way you wash your hair, every thought, every action, every part, giving glory to Jesus. Because by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance for you to do. Thank you for listening to the recording of the Dublin Bible Talks. You can join us in real time on Wednesdays at 1pm Dublin time on Zoom, bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks. That's bit.ly slash Dublin Bible Talks.